This episode of Uncultured the Podcast is brought to you by Paprika Boutique, the cutest South Asian wear for your fairy best friend, allowing you to include them in all your life-altering occasions, memories, and celebrations. Is this thing on? Cool. Hello and welcome to the next episode of Uncultured the Podcast. I'm your host, Kripa, here to add a little bit of colour to your weeks. This week's guest is Tharun Chavla, an Indian-born Australian writer, gender equality and mental health advocate. Following the devastating murder of his sister Nikita Chavla in 2015, Tharun became an activist against men's violence. Tharang has gone through more than the average person would in 10 lifetimes, yet has mobilized a movement towards eliminating gender-based violence, racism, and general internet douchebaggery. He's been in the media on multiple Australian television and radio networks, and deservingly was named a Victorian finalist for Australian of the Year in 2017. Despite his heavy story, we were able to chat absolute shit on this episode about men's fashion, consent education, why the stereotype against made in China is so harmful, and that's not without having a conversation about his wonderful sister Nikki um, and how he has grappled with the grief of losing her. What a wonderful, inspirational and kind human. Thank you, Tarang, uh, for your voice and time, and I cannot wait for you guys to listen to this one. So without further ado, here's Tharun. Hi, I just thought I would pop in before the episode starts and let you guys know that um, I'm going to pop a content warning in. This episode does discuss themes of domestic violence and murder um, when talking about the uh, loss of Tharun's sister, Nikita. So if that's going to be triggering, then... Uh, please take care of yourselves and go binge one of our other episodes on Uncultured. Um, Also, I wanted to add that this is a longer episode than usual. If you're here just to listen to Thong's story and not really interested in some great chat, I must say, um, you can forward to around 46 minutes. That's when we will have finished talking about a couple of topics around men's fashion, uh, a wild story about how the chief health minister of Victoria ended up following Tharang on Twitter and why there is a stereotype against clothes that are made in Asia, as well as just generally getting to know each other, rapport, all that good stuff, Um, and a whole lot more that we're talking about um, in that space as well and toxic masculinity and all the fun stuff. But if you want to just listen to Tharang talking about his story, then you can forward to around 46, 47 minutes. Uh, I will also add that if the episode is longer than your liking, you can also listen to it uh, in 1.5 speed. That is usually what I do when I listen to podcasts. Um, If you're in a rush or if you don't have as much free time, then I definitely recommend that. Um, Yeah, so I'm going to shut the fuck up now. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm great, thank you. How are you? Uh, yeah, all right. It's really nice weather in Melbourne today, and I um, foolishly said yes to doing all this work stuff in the afternoon after this. <laughs> and I like I didn't I didn't have to do it, 
and yeah. I really, I, I regret it immensely. Like I regret, like it, today is an error. It is like a mistake of a day. Like I should not have, I should have just said, no, I can't do it. And I said, yeah. yes. And now it's rare to, do, to like, get good weather as well while you're free and like lining it up. Yeah. Thanks for reminding me that I live in Melbourne. Like, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah. We've yeah. had really good weather almost every day for the last week here in Sydney. Just saying. Yeah. It's kind of hard because after three months of lockdown, it's hard to convince yourself that your lifestyle is, you're allowed to go out now. So I'm just kind of, I really haven't done anything different since the lockdown's lifted. Yeah, right. So you haven't ventured out at all? Like I have, but not as much as I should be, I feel. I feel like there's a there's this expectation now that things have lifted. We have to kind of just switch back to our full social selves. And I've just come like my yeah. social anxiety is higher, my like laziness yeah. is higher. Yeah. That's I mean, yeah, I that doesn't surprise me hearing that. I'm sorry that you're going through that, but it doesn't surprise me because I think that it's pretty common. It's just not as talked about. Like yeah. there's this kind of expectation that everyone's supposed to be really excited. Yeah. But there's also this sense of uh like a little panic, a little dread, and then also like not knowing what to say. Like yeah. for me, I people are like, What have you been up to? It's like nothing. Literally. There's no nothing. updates. Yeah. I've been yeah. in my bed. <laughs> There's yeah. nothing else to I have tell no, you. Yeah, I have no passion projects. I'm not like I don't play instruments now that I didn't yeah. play before the yeah. pandemic. I don't speak another language. I just, yeah. And I, I really, I appreciate people who didn't hustle really hard, like who just mm. got through. It's almost like the crowd that really hustled very, very hard. Some of them were trying to get away from themselves mm. rather than like actually just reflect. Sit with their know? feelings. Yeah, and I've got friends that came out of the pandemic now and, like, all that's changed is they're like, I'm actually really good at meditating and I feel calmer as a result. Yeah. That's 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 an achievement. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you remember the first lockdown we were in? I mean, I know you guys have gone through so many more, but I remember the first one, the rhetoric was very much like you have no excuse now you have all the time in the world you've got all the resources and if you don't meet all your goals during this lockdown then the issue isn't ever anything else but you and it's like that is just such a reductive way to look at success yeah yeah absolutely and it was like this idea of you've got to do stuff to occupy the time because we, we're granting you flexibility. I remember a lot of corporates were saying like, oh, you can work from home. And it was like, sorry, they were saying you could work flexibly. And it was like, no, we're working from home because there's a public health crisis. Like they're not, we're not getting flexible working arrangements really. We're yeah. just expected to do the same while adding on, you know, caring responsibilities and yeah. trying to figure out mentally what we're living with. Yeah, I think there was a bit going on there and uh, that was the Tiger King lockdown. I remember that one vividly. Yeah, exactly. Easily my, what's, what's this my one? Favorite. Was, there's a show that's been happening right now. Oh, the Squid Game lockdown. Squid Game, yeah. Mm. Squid Game. Yeah. I, yeah. Think, I think also what the lockdown kind of showed us was corporates were always able to give us the flexible working arrangements that we asked for, especially people who are mentally ill or disabled. And it's like you were always able to let us do this, but you just never, yeah. N- never, yeah. it, you never did it till you absolutely were mandated to by the law. Yeah, it, it, it 
just until it um, was necessary, strictly necessary from like that legal perspective that you touched on, they were like, no. Hey, I think we have the same book on our bookshelf. Do we actually? This one. Yeah. Sapiens. There we go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a great that one. Homo Deus. Yeah, I I I bought um Homo Deus for my boyfriend, and I haven't read it off him yet. But um, I've heard that Sapiens is definitely the better one. Yeah, Sapiens is better. Sapiens is definitely better. Yeah. If there's anything else that would jump out, no. Yeah, but how has lockdown kind of been for you? How do you think you've kind of changed over lockdown? That's a good question. Um, uh. I don't know. I just, I, I'm a bit anxious. I'm a bit trying to get back to a sense of what normal is and understanding mm-hmm. what normal means and then trying not to uh, weigh into as much of what the media tells us is uh, is normal. You know, particularly like I've started reframing my thinking around anti-vaccination stances. I've seen the way the media portrays this vocal minority, but in both you know, New South Wales and Victoria, I think in New South Wales, over 90% of people have had their first dose, yeah, which means 93. that over 90% of, yeah, yeah, 93% of people over the age of 16 have had their first dose, right? Which, which means that 93% will inevitably have their second dose. So the, the number, just in a quantitative sense, the number of people who are opposing vaccination are in the minority. Mm. But you wouldn't know if you went, on mainstream media yeah right and so it seems like yeah it seems like there's this like and they and they talk about it they say both sides to the debate but there's not there's not both sides if one side is you know significantly in the majority right Mm. where it's like oh we believe in vaccination we believe in science we want things to open up we want everyone to have the best possible public health based on medically scientifically evidence-based advice it's this thing like i'm trying to actively reframe the way i look at situations so that i don't buy into panic and dread and and anxiety around what could be and what if Mm. and just try and live you know as comfortably as possible i think it's easy to kind of get pulled into this idea that the world is worse than it is obviously the world is really fucked up um but Mm. when all we've really been able to do for the last three months is absorb media and news when that's all we do and everything is shit news right now. Heightening and sensationalizing the amount of people that are anti-vax, it kind of makes you extra scared, like more scared than we... It it is scary, but it's, it's a smaller percentage of people than we think it is. Yeah. And it, I mean, it is a smaller percentage of people than we think it is. And that, that whole thing about consuming the media, I mean, that really resonates because there was a period, you know, I live in Melbourne and during that long lockdown, I mean, which one, but during that long lockdown <laughs> last year from July to October or whatever, um, I watched the daily updates at 11 a.m. or whenever they took place with the Premier and the Chief Health Officer, Brett Sutton, and Others, like I tuned in religiously, and it was because a lot of my work was cancelled and mm. um, or postponed. So I didn't have a lot to do. Like there was no gyms weren't open. Mm. Uh, there was there was really not a lot to do, and there was this interesting sense of community developing in online spaces around people who watched the updates. It was fascinating. Look, I would watch the updates every day without fail. 
And I don't know anything about public health, right? Like I don't yeah. know. I'm not like scientifically inclined. I Like I'm very much like I'm not going to do my own research. I'm going yeah. to trust the people who know how to do the research. I, I trust them. Right? Mm. I, I put my faith in them. During that long lockdown, I would like watch the updates and just provide commentary on the suits that the men were wearing. And then... <laughs> Oh my God! Wait, where would you where, would you put this on, on your socials? On Twitter, on Twitter, yeah. yeah, on Twitter every day, every day. And and uh, Dan Andrews, Premier of Victoria, he would get up every day, and the first thing he'd say is, "Everyone, right to go," right? And I would start my tweet thread the same way. I'd be like, "Everyone, right to go," uh, like eleven oh five, and then I would detail in analysis by looking really closely at the screen. And like providing commentary on like lapel width and like shoulder <laughs> constructions. Like, so I used to work when I was at university. I used to work in um, high end menswear and, and tailoring. And so like I like I I know more or less what I'm talking about when it comes to that topic, right? Because I, I learned over time. And so I would just provide my thoughts, and then I would like make suggestions, right? So it wasn't like you know. <laughs> And it was grounded in the fact that this is not important. Like this is yeah. just my way of coping in an otherwise <laughs> terrible situation. I love that. <laughs> but the best thing to come out of all of that for me was that the chief health officer, Brett Sutton, who um, was, uh, he has fans across Australia, certainly. Um, like there was the group that that put his face on to like bed sheets and printed it out and you can buy like, you can buy memorabilia with his face on it. Jesus I mean, Christ reasonably like attractive man yeah um, he uh he started wearing a couple of the things that I suggested no right? way yeah like I remember suggesting like a, a navy shirt under a particular color suit that he wore for a bit of contrast and uh and then like two days later he was wearing that and someone asked him they were like hey did you did you see what Darren wrote on social media did you did you and then he he wrote back sheepishly yeah I did Oh and my god! <laughs> it was it was the best day of my life because he then started following me on social media. And for no. context, he has I think he, I think two hundred I think two hundred thousand people follow him, and he follows two hundred accounts. And the accounts oh are like god. Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, the World Health Organization, and then throwing Uni- trouble. <laughs> yeah, United Nations, and then at the bottom is just me, <laughs> like. Random guy in Melbourne, no blue tick, nothing. And it's just like, cool. Like, and that's and then, the best thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and then when anything, and then like, you know, like as people of colour, we get trolled on the internet, right? Arguably yeah, yeah. more than others, right? And yeah. women of colour in particular, right? I just want to ground that. Like I have a certain degree of male privilege, but I still get like racist abuse and other things, right? Yeah. And once I wrote about it, and then he wrote me a like a DM just being like, you know, I'm really sorry that you're going through this, chin up and like, you know, you're doing good work, something like that. And I was like, this is the best. Like I've never met him. I don't know anything about him. But, um, yeah, it was just uh, it was this kind of like real human moment in amongst yeah. all this like panic and, yeah. and dread. And so we all had different ways of getting through the yeah. lockdown, I guess. He still follows me. Like it wasn't, it hasn't been temporary. Like he hasn't That's unfollowed. So That's so and funny. I'm sort of waiting like initially I was like, oh, this is a mistake. Like he's done this by accident, uh, but he still follows me. I'm glad that you were able to able to have a little bit of fun with with lockdown as well. I think um, I think 
the panic that I've seen, and at least in the New South Wales Health Daily Morning updates or whatever, the panic and the worry and the and I'd like obviously warranted worry that people have in the comments. I think it's a nice break to kind of hear your commentary on it. Like a bit more lighthearted and a bit more like, hey, I'm not a health expert, but you know what I do know. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I I didn't tweet it, but I remember seeing like Brad Hazard in New South Wales. And I was like, bro, why are you wearing a red tie again? Like you've got other ties in your wardrobe? Like it's the third day running. You're wearing the same thing. Come on, man. Like, <laughs> you, know, you know what's refreshing though? Like women get pulled up on this shit all the time and no one ever talks about yeah. men, what men wear. No. No, no one does. And that's, I mean, for me, that's the thing, right? Because people people will say, what about the women? And firstly, I don't, I never worked in, um, or I don't know as much about women's wear. But in terms of what looks good, women mm. get criticised. Like, it's literally like a case of like, woman exists, someone will criticise them. Yeah. Just for like, just looks like, why are you alive? So it's like, what is some random dude on the internet going, what is he going to add if he's like writing about what they're wearing? So I'm just like, i got nothing to say. On this, right, like men, like classic menswear, like suits and stuff, the history of it like derives from quite like a utilitarian thing. You know, like form follows function, essentially. There, there's um, a lot that you can say that's just about the, the, the actual items themselves then they're not criticisms of the person because ultimately it doesn't matter. Like if someone doesn't dress nice, do you judge them? Like, no, I don't care. Like yeah. it's just, it's like, so for instance, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. It's become a trend in the last sort of like 10 years or so. All men's suit jackets used to be made with buttons that functioned on their wrist cuff, right? right. And the reason for that is they were called uh, surgeon's cuffs because right. surgeons would have to be able to remove like to, to like roll to up their sleeves. Up. Yeah, and so for a long time it was like a, a hallmark of um, like things made by hand. But mm. then that started, you know, machines were able to do that just as well um, or as close as possible to like things made by hand. Um, so it started like now you can go anywhere and buy it. But it was like it was like little things like that, like little details that I like. I don't know, just wired that way in my brain yeah. that I obsess over, and I'm like, oh, that's beautiful. That's really well made. That's really nice. They still have. The like surgeon's cuff thing, like that's still a thing in a lot of dress shirts. Is that, is it still a thing because of it just always having been a thing? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it hasn't changed that much. And that's the thing, right? Like, whenever I see male politicians in particular, right, accounting for how much they get paid, and this is in the Australian context, right? They, they get paid really, really well, right? Comparatively, yeah. they have a lot of, they have a lot of stress on them, but a lot of them, put no effort into getting dressed. A lot of them put no effort into how they present themselves, whereas yeah. the women get scrutinised to the nth degree. Constantly. Regardless like, of where they fit on the political spectrum. Do you remember that whole thing where Carl, like I guess it hasn't aged very well, but when Carl Stefanovic wore the same suit for a year um, to prove yeah. that, you know, how much um, Lisa Wilkinson was getting shit for her outfits and repeating an outfit or something and he was like after a year hey no one said anything to me yeah mm. yeah that's true i remember that i remember seeing that and you're you're so right it has not aged well because i mm. think that when it came to like gender pay parity there was mm. that did not exist there do you know what i find interesting and i wonder if you know more history behind it but the whole idea that people's buttons on like men's traditionally men's shirts are on the other side because 
to allow their partner to put their buttons on for them. And that's why their buttons are on the other side. And then women's buttons are on the left, I think, so they can put it on themselves. Is that a thing? Is that real or is that a rumor? No, the, the buttons on women's and uh, and men's clothing, uh, like traditionally gendered clothing, are on the are on different sides. Opposite sides, right? Yeah. So um, so it, and it, and it actually um, it derives more from uh, from class than it does from strictly gender line. During like the Renaissance and Victorian era, like women's so women's clothing was more complicated than men's. Like they wore they wore like petticoats and like corsets, uh, yeah. yeah. And so like men would dress themselves, right? So like the and most people are right handed. So like the button would be like there, and then people yeah. listening are like, "What's going on?" It's just yeah. imitating <laughs> up a shirt. Yeah, um, he's he's but, uh, putting on imaginary buttons. <laughs> yeah, but but women. So women from a certain class would have another person dress them, right? right? And then, and so, so like the upper elite classes right. would, would have someone dress them, and like so s- servants essentially, servant, right? yeah, yeah. So that was the that was the way, and so that's where it originated from. And then later, it sort of became a bit complicated because. Uh, there was like bits about men's clothing taking cues from like military uniforms and things like that. So it's sort right. of, um, yeah, it all got, uh, it all got kind of mixed up there, but there's this whole, um, there's this whole like exhibit around it at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Really? There's about like, there's whole, like, yeah, about clo- well, clothes. not the buttons. Specifically, <laughs> Just the whole exhibit clothes. about the positioning of buttons on clothes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there'd be like four people at that exhibit, and I'd be one of them. But, but yeah, I love, like it's a very niche area. But I love this. I love how things are put together. It doesn't have to be clothes. It's just anything. Yeah. It's like anything made by either by hand, yeah. or you know, in a way where it's sort of like designed to last a certain amount yeah. of time. I really respect that. I think because, and it's tricky. Like. For, like a lot for a lot of us right like fast fashion is what we get and what we buy myself included because it's it's all we can afford yeah right? yeah but and it's convenient it's, it's convenient like, right yeah. but it's so terrible for the environment and I often think like you know coming from a South Asian background whenever we'd go visit family and we'd get clothes everything there even to this day handcrafted tends to is tends to be made you know by hand or made for the person Right, mm. which actually contributes to less wastage. And every time I go back to India, and granted I haven't been since 2018, but every time I go, I lament a little bit when I see the rise of uh, like massive department stores that yeah. just sell like what we've got at like, you know, um, I don't know, Westfield in Sydney or yeah. um, Chadston here. It's it's sort of like it's like there's just all these racks of clothes and eventually, not all of them sell, so they just get moved on somewhere else. Half mm-hmm. of them end up in landfill, and it's like the way a lot of things in you know certain Asian countries are made is that like they'll you know, and we have a perception that they waste in the West. There's a perception that they contribute to waste. Yeah, more, right. But when it comes to clothing, it's really interesting because a lot of people get things made for them. Yeah, right? a lot of people get things made specifically for their size, and then they get it altered down the line, and then it lasts a lot longer. Whereas yeah. here, it's sort of like you go in. You buy something, you're a small, medium, large, extra large, whatever, and then you just like, if it doesn't fit, you can't just deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. 
so few people get clothes altered to fit and it's just like yeah it's, it's not just a, innately a part of our culture in you know india to to necessarily even socially to go shopping at a department store and to consume that way rather than you know the the way that we've traditionally done it which is through markets or smaller kind of small businesses or through like word of mouth or whatever it is that's kind of how we've traditionally yeah. access clothes even you know at at our age like when we were younger that's probably what we were exposed to but now it's kind of like becoming more normal to shop online and shop at department stores yeah i just i have to flag that it's it's very flattering to be considered our age because i'm 34 <laughs> now so i'm not like i, I close enough I right you don't even yeah, know how old i, I am <laughs> It doesn't, yeah, I'm not going to ask. Um, so I, um, yeah, I really, it, like I feel it whenever I go back and I see uh, how India is shifting in that way. And I think it's, there's certain positives to it and it's great. But I also think like, what about the, you know, what about the things that we're good at when it comes to putting, you know, making things? I mean, to me, I often wonder like to what extent the normalization of racist attitudes has meant that things like made in Italy are good yeah but made in china like people assume that that's great but if it's made in china or it's made in india or it's made in bad quality or whatever yeah and it's like they're not synonymous yeah they're not there's certain there's definitely certain examples of it right and there's certainly like cheap stuff that comes out of asia and i say cheap not as affordable but cheap as in like poorly made Mm. Uh, but but it's not like a strict rule And, like, friends of mine who still work in, I've got a friend in Melbourne, Steve, who runs Informale, like a sartorial casual wear brand, and he's spoken at length with me about a lot of this stuff and, like, the misconceptions that people have about what made in Asia can mean, you know. And he said once, he goes, it's interesting, like, when you go to Italy um, and you go to these, like, ateliers that are, like, making things by hand, he said a lot of the people working there are of Asian origin now because they really? can't get Italian people that are interested in doing this anymore. He said it was a culture shock for me. He was like, oh, I couldn't believe that, like, everything I'd thought was, like, just crushing before me because he's like, I'd romanticise the idea that there'd be this old Italian man who'd been working since 16 <laughs> and um, started as an apprentice and uh, and now is in his 80s but still working. And uh, it's just, a you know, a group of middle-aged women of um, Asian origin. And he's like, uh. it was incredible. Like, they were so prolific and they were so good but it wasn't what I thought I would see. It's, so. it's interesting, right? And it's un, it's unfair in a way. I mean, I recently got gifted a chess set from like the streets of Amritsar and there, there's like videos online of people creating each piece and the way they create the knight and the way they create the bishop and it's so intricate and detailed. And I'm like, this is this is like quality and it feels quality, but the fact that, you're right. I've never actually thought about the whole notion that, you know, if it's made in India or made in China, it's shit quality. It's like, no, there are there are proper professionals and and people who were born to do this who are just not getting the recognition. Yeah. I mean, there's you're spot on, right? Like there's um there's such good stuff that comes out of it. And like people don't acknowledge, right? And this is one of the things that going back to like during that um that whole uh Brett Sutton and um sartorial analysis phase of twitter during yeah. during lockdown three i would get asked questions and then i would like i would end up googling and learning myself but then yeah. i would also try to um 
like educate people as respectfully as possible. Because I think what's happened, right, is that like, and particularly in a country like Australia, uh, is that like modern Australia is one of the younger countries in the world, right? We were mm. um, invaded in 1788 and, um, and then everything since then has been like a combination of genocide, a erasure of history. Let's not talk about what actually happened. In amongst all of that is like, the way we live and the way we work and the way we dress and all of that stuff. And a lot of it is framed around a very Anglo sense of, you know, what we do and how we live. And so I think that it's it's framed a lot of people's thinking around certain things like our origin in South Asia, right? There's similar parallels, right? Like the British rocked up in the 1600s to initiate trade and take over from the Dutch East India Company after mm -hmm. the Netherlands had, had been there. And then they basically were just like, yeah, we own this joint now. Um, you can pay us rent to live here. And all of the stuff got like systematically changed, right? But India had like centuries old tradition of like mm. textile manufacturing, silks, mm. production of fabrics. Yeah, and, and jewels. And, and jewelry, right? And it's sort of like all of that stuff, right? All of that stuff made by hand was so celebrated across the world. You know, like the mm. Italians in Rome wanted it, right? They would they would send their yeah. um they would send goods from there and trade yeah. the way it used to happen. Yeah. And so I just think that like here in Australia, we don't we don't learn about that stuff. We don't ever learn about the the richness of cultural diversity in history. Yeah. You know, like when I think about what I learned in school, we learned so much of history from the perspective of every quote-unquote explorer between 1788 and, you know, the mid-90s when I was in primary school, mid to late 90s when I was in primary school. And that was it, right? That was yeah. all that we learned about. And then we did, like, one week for Aboriginal History Week and then we did, like, mm -hmm. um, one hour of, like, world history and that was, like, the US and the UK. Yeah. And it was like, what about the continent of Africa? What about the Middle East? What mm. about, you know, like, I went to a, a Christian Catholic primary school Mm. And I didn't know until I was an adult, like 17 or 18, that Jesus wasn't white. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I only knew like two years ago and I, I I should have known a long time ago when you really think about it critically, right? But pop culture and yeah. the media and, and even like history, the way that it's described, it's... Yeah. People don't want to confront the idea that, you know, you're you're praying to a person of colour. It's like, th this, yeah. this is your God. Yeah. Like, he he didn't look like the way that he's portrayed in most of popular culture. Like, yeah. the, the the image of the, um like, really white-skinned, blue-eyed, blonde hair, blonde long hair, like, that's not him. Yeah. And we still say it, like, I mean, like, you put it on TV and, like, you'll see, like, you know, a rock, like, a folk guitar rocker guy and, yeah. like... It's like, like Fabio. Someone, <laughs> yeah, someone on someone on Australian TV will be like, oh, yeah, he's got that, like, Jesus look about him. And I'm sitting at home like, not really. Yeah. Like, no. Nah. Looks more like a guy from Western Sydney, to be <laughs> honest. But, hey, like, whatever. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting how much storytelling after impacts our perceptions of um yeah. of what actually happened yeah and that's why i'd love to see us um telling more stories telling stories that are that are honest and truthful about mm. the way things were and the way things are and for me it's like telling those stories is not a negative thing you know yeah. it's not like there's this perception that if we talk about how things 
were that will somehow be, you know, responsible for all of it. You know, a lot of people exactly. will say like, oh, but I, I didn't do it. My ancestors did it. And it's like, no, but the conversation isn't like you are at fault. It's not about you. you. Yeah. Yeah. The conversation is like that that you've benefited from the systems system. that were put in place. And you continue so let's to benefit dismantle from them. It. Exactly. Yeah. So let's dismantle them. Yeah. Um, but it's yeah. I mean, that that gulf in understanding is unfortunately a bit of a leap for people. Yeah. And I think that kind of links with the whole idea of kind of toxic masculinity as well in the conversation around that, where people immediately are like, oh my God, when you talk about toxic masculinity, you hate all men, you think all men are bad. It's like, no, if you actually listen to what we're describing to be toxic masculinity, it it's not about you. It's about a system that you benefit from and people fall into behaviors as a result of that and it's kind of hard to separate that for whatever reason and I think it's the same kind of idea with like white privilege people like oh my god like just because I'm white doesn't mean I shouldn't get a job it's like no no one said you shouldn't get a job that's not what we're talking about yeah yeah I mean the 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 stuff around um you know white privilege uh, and all of this it, it endlessly fascinates me because there's such defensiveness you know when it comes to particularly the intersection of uh toxic masculinity and and white privilege like when you see um you know upper middle class white cisgendered white men that you know occupy positions of comparative power and privilege that they you know if you so much as say something the degree of defensiveness that's met is really really um it's it's an issue because it, it stifles Immediate. progress. You can't have a conversation, and I've noticed it happening as well um, with uh, this this you know upper middle class white women, you yeah. know cisgender white women, recently more so than probably of just a few years ago. And I think that's because partly because I mean I subscribe to ideas of intersectional feminism. To me, that's very important because yeah. the experience of the experience of say like a migrant woman of color is not the same as the experience of uh, a white woman from the eastern suburbs exactly you know, like they're not they're not the same like, exactly. they're not the same experience right they both share a sense of womanhood but the but the intersections of class race yeah. ethnicity um, uh, whatever it may be they all they all yeah as the term goes intersect and so like you need to look at them more holistically and so for me it's like you know, whether it's like, uh, do you remember when Sam Frost spoke about the anti-vaccination stuff? Yeah. And that came out, right? And then the very idea of asking questions of her yeah. saw all the people of colour I know labelled as bullies. It's bullying, yeah. I mean, for context, yeah. for people listening, Sam Frost came out, um, you know, kind of talking about how anti-vaxxers are being segregated and facilitating this notion of, segregation now in the new era of people who aren't vaccinated and also just adding that Sam Frost was Australia's first ever bachelorette. I think like a lot of people including yourself Thorong like came out to to kind of be like, hey, that's not the right word to use. Segregation has a lot of weight in history and um, trauma associated with it and we can't really like equivalent equate the two situations and immediately there was like a barrage of people being like how dare you bully this woman she's just I think there was even someone who called her a little girl like you're bullying a little girl or it's like that's very patronizing she's a woman with her own opinions as well yeah 
the infantilization of her really that I mean I didn't like that at all right and to me it was like she's not a little girl Mm -hmm. uh, like much like you said like don't call her that that's super patronizing I also found it really complicated how it was like a position for people of color that spoke up about this that they were damned if you do damned if you don't you know like if they didn't speak up then you know other degrade you know influencer types would be like oh you spoke up about the last thing why didn't you speak up about this right Uh, and so it's like damned if you don't and then if you do it's like that some like some of the terms directed at me were that I was vicious ferocious a bully a pig, asshole, piece of shit, um, and then and then it went into like just other racist stuff, right? Which I won't. That's um, horrible. I'm, I'm so sorry like, that you have to deal with. Like, oh, it's fine. That language, but like, it made me reflect. Like I went back and I read everything with a fine tooth. Like I got my like law degree out, and I I didn't actually do this, but I like <laughs> I sat it next to me, and I'm like, all right, I'm I'm smart. I know how to comprehend words and I went and I read it and I read it and I'm like nah this not I didn't bully like I don't think I bullied but it was yeah. like and, th- and th- you like, were very nice that- by the way when you called her out it was very very nice and it was just a very black and white matter of fact conversation you were having it wasn't bullying well for me it was like just um also, really clever use of black and white. Um, I, I right. just think that, <laughs> I think that, um, I think that it, like, this whole thing around, like, cancel culture and this whole thing around, like, you know, um, if you, do, like, be nice and be kind or whatever, it all just, like, clouds into this thing where we can't have honest conversations. Like, mm-hmm. and people, I don't think people have ever had like we're never taught how to apologize right we're never taught how to take responsibility or accountability and so like she said this thing right and in the big scheme of things it's not the most harmful thing right like let's take intent as being like she you know she's someone suffering and so if you so much as go hey you might not be aware um but can you can you look into this when you're able to yeah that's not bullying right like and so it's interesting that like the people who came out in support of her were the ones who were actually bullying people of colour, you know, yeah. like they would they would um, send them relentless DMs, they would tag them in stuff. and mm-hmm. um, Like be kind know, doesn't apply when you talk to people of colour. It only applies when you're in different circles. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know what be kind means anymore. Like I think, um, yeah, it just... Yeah, it's been appropriated yeah. away. Like being yeah. kind doesn't mean being a pushover, right? Like yeah. if, if people of colour assert some boundaries or they express a point of view, they're not bullying. Yeah. And I also think it's very, I, I agree with your point, I think it's very patronising to women collectively to assume that you can't disagree with a woman without uh, yeah. it being a form of bullying, right? Like it, it, to me it contributes to that idea that um, women are, perceived as being weaker or unable to handle things you know Mm. when it's like none of that is true you know Uh, but I don't know whether it's uh, social media I don't know what what it is but people's sort of ability to engage in like civil discourse right and and like disagree on things uh, in a way that is not counterproductive or or harmful Mm. is is diminished Diminished. i think there's such yeah yeah i think there's such like mob mentality right Mm. and i'm like this i don't think it serves anyone you know we're allowed to call each other out and 
honestly, all it really would have taken was her being like, you know what, I used the wrong language and I am like, I acknowledge that and I'm really sorry to anyone that I've offended. Like, it's just a matter of acknowledging it. And I think it was just blown out of proportion by, you know, the people who were kind of coming after the people who were calling her out. And I think it's, it speak to a, speaks to a bigger issue, I guess. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And I mean, like, I don't know, like, I don't know if she's back on social media. I didn't yeah, follow neither. her before. Yeah, but I mean, like, I hope she's okay. You yeah. Know, like, I'm not, yeah, I don't yeah. wish her. She's still obviously going thing. through something and that's still valid. And yeah. no one's yeah. invalidating that. Yeah. And for mine, like, I will, I will say this, that um, because she did talk about the anti-vaccination stuff, right? And, uh, or she, she said that there's, she had, she expressed, I think, like some concern around vaccination or something, something around the lines of, um, that she'd spoken to a doctor about it, right? And I don't know her medical history. Yeah. It's not my business. But um, my understanding is that, like, medical exemptions to not get vaccinated are pretty few and far between, mm. right? And, like, even people with even people who are immunocompromised, they just get a different vaccine or they may, there's allowances made for them. And generally they're the ones that get vaccinated first because they're the ones that will suffer yeah. the most, right? Which went against how I understood stuff. I thought it was like all the healthy, quote-unquote healthy population gets vaccinated first and then we do it for the other people who are immunocompromised. But it's it's, yeah. it's both at the same time, right? So you yeah. like look after them and then the rest case. of the population. Yeah. And so for me it's like... Um, it's like this that going back to that point that we were making earlier that it's like a vocal minority yeah. and it's made out like it's a huge deal but like 90 something percent in sydney are getting the vaccine people want to get back to whatever normal looks like they want to go like i mean like my parents my mum wants to go see her family in india yeah and i can imagine to travel how, yeah to, you know see people and and do things and feel connected right we don't get that long on on earth anyway right like if you yeah. get 80 years get 80 good years then you've done well right so it's like um yeah i want to get back to doing things and a lot of us have lost the last couple of years i feel for uh teenagers in particular you know and people who are like you know in their early 20s like so much of how you perceive the world occurs during that time and people have been stuck inside and it's just yeah yeah it's not great how have you how have you sort of found all of that it's been it's been interesting i think that I think that a lot of the life I wanted to live in terms of my early 20s was kind of stolen away from me. Um, I was going to go on exchange last year. Um, I was going to be living in Europe for six months. I was, uh, I don't know, I had I had a lot of plans. Even with starting the podcast, I, I didn't envision doing everything remotely. Pretty much the entire time I've been doing the podcast has been remote. And, you know, when you're when you have all these plans in your early twenties and th- they just come and kind of come crashing down, I feel more honestly for my um, for my younger sister. She did her HSC in lockdown entirely, her entire year. So I don't know if you guys call it the HSC there, but her year twelve finals. Um, and yeah, did the entire thing in lockdown and then started uni for about a couple months, but immediately was in lockdown again. I remember my first year was just constantly going out, getting drunk and like making friends, meeting friends of friends. And she just hasn't had that same experience. And I think it speaks volumes because she's not a very emotional person. And she just sat down one day and she was like, I just feel like a lot's been stolen from me. And I was like, there's a whole generation of people like that. 
people who have just been like, these were supposed to be these really fun, like constantly moving years of my life. And that's just kind of not any, not there. And I can't do anything about it. Yeah. That's terrible. Like just hearing that so heartbreaking. I think that that's the thing, right? Like people who didn't express it before are, well, I'm glad they're expressing it yeah, and getting it out and, and, talking about it but it's also i think more widespread than people realize yeah like and i think that's the thing right that there's this kind of perception around all of the pandemic and and healing that um hasn't accounted for the fact that this is such a traumatic event and it will linger in terms of how people respond and how people process and it hasn't it's happening in real time like it's not something that happened and is over and it's done this is like a continuing thing yeah and so people's people's sense of like emotional and mental and and other health and well-being will be impacted the way that we view the world is just so skewed right now and I, i don't see that disappearing for a while I might put a pin in this conversation and um, get into actually asking the questions. But hello, it is Future Cripper talking. Before we do that, I have to tell you guys about Paprika Boutique, the sponsor for today's episode. You might have heard uh, Tharang talk about his dog Habibi earlier in this episode. And if you are a longtime follower of Tharang, you know how much Habibi has been Uh, a support for him. I think a lot of us who have pets can relate to the idea that they bring so much joy to our lives. They're pretty much family members. And that's exactly what inspired Paprika Boutique. Founder Mega's furry best friend is Sauna. And last year, Mega got married to the other love of her life. Being the big fat Indian wedding that it was, festivities took place over several days, but something was missing through the chaos of planning venues, catering, makeup, jewelry, vows, garlands. Mega kind of thought, what am I forgetting? and looked at Sauna and realized what is Sauna going to wear. A lot of people don't think about how important any pet is to one's life and for them to be around you celebrating your big day is something that not a lot of pets get to be involved in. Megal searched far and wide but only found like unadorned bows and bandanas, nothing stood out. So she took matters into her own hands and created bespoke outfits for Sauna. Her Sauna was by mega side matching her with velvets and kanji rooms for each and every event this is where paprika boutique began your fur baby is part of your family they show unconditional love always and they deserve to receive it in return paprika boutique was created for all dogs to include them in all your life-altering occasions, memories, and celebrations, Paprika's unique designs are Desi-inspired, handmade, and the first and most fabulous of its kind. They have dog Shervanis, they have dog Bao Bao ties, Patupavades, they have Anarkalis, they have literally everything. You can find Paprika at paprikaboutique.com, that's P-U-P-R-I-K-A boutique. or on Instagram at Paprika Boutique. Introducing Lux South Asian apparel to celebrate any occasion in style with pets that become family. Now, back to the episode. I'm going to read Tharang's words from his article in the Daily Telegraph late last year. My sister's abuse began with control and ended with her death. Nikita's abuse didn't begin with hitting. Instead, it was small acts of control, like monitoring her spending, that gradually, over time, led to the darkest and most tragic end. 
Is it normal that a partner checks your phone, demands an explanation for how you spend your money, or monitors who you're allowed to spend time with? Looking back, for my sister Nikita, who was violently murdered by her partner in 2015, her killer was one of those men. It didn't start with hitting her, and it rarely does. And now I will just give you some background. And if this is triggering, it was really difficult for me to read and talk about. So if it is triggering, please, please um, go listen to another episode or go for a walk. Nikita had just finished her final exams in a performing arts degree when her ex-partner murdered her with a meat cleaver in their home in January 2015. Nikki was 23. Um, Her husband at the time was jealous And news outlets describe that her body was butchered beyond recognition. On the morning of, her murderer asked emergency workers to discard of his wife's corpse. It was cold, callous and emotionless, as Thorong describes it to be. Thorong had to see the scene and had to mobilise as the strength in his family after such a horrifying ordeal. This is very difficult to hear, as I can imagine, but it provides context which will preface the rest of the conversation that I have with Tarang, so you understand what he has been through and how amazing he is for the work he is doing today. Thank you for your time. I know we're pretty much already like an hour into this, but I... Um, I I feel honored to to interview you. I've been um, kind of following your journey from, I'd say, from like 2018, 2019, when you kind of started being um, more online with your journey as well. And it's um, equal parts tragic and inspiring. You've just been able to transform like experience, your experience of grief and trauma into something that whether you know it or not, is helping a lot of people with their own um, issues and is not just helping people with experiences they've had in their life, but I think your message has the potential to reach people who can reflect on their own behaviour, which I think is something that, like, unfortunately, it has a lot more weight coming from a man because, when women talk about this, firstly, if the space is so saturated, the social justice and um, anti-racist and anti-domestic um, violence space is so, quote-unquote, like oversaturated by women's voices that they're not taken seriously anymore. And I think that's kind of where I think what you do really is um, amazing because people are more likely to listen to you as well. And you do a good job of balancing that and kind of passing the mic when you need to as well. Well, thank you. I mean, for me, it just like it, it means a lot to to hear that it's helping people. I mean, otherwise, uh, what's the point, right? Like yeah. we, like you, like you pointed out, a lot of people uh, speak about this. They have spoken about this for a long time. Uh, all of these issues, uh, it's nothing new, right? So. Um, what's another person speaking about the same thing going to contribute? And so for me, it's like, if I think that I've got something meaningful to add, then it's worth me opening my mouth. Otherwise, there's there's enough out there. Um, I think it's also just something that hasn't 
permeated uh, South Asian communities and South Asian men because there's a whole different subset of issues that um, that we deal with as South Asians and that South Asian men are exposed to based on the way that they're brought up as well. And so I guess hearing like someone who is like them is would be so impact would be so impactful. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, at the end of the day, like we're exposed in South Asian communities to the intersection of so many different things, you know, like particularly growing up in Australia, um, where a lot of us experience racism. It's not, you know, uh, it's not some, I mean, I know other South Asian men who say that they didn't experience racism or they don't think that there's any racism and that's fine. That's their view and that's their experience. And I'm grateful that if they don't think there was any overt forms of racism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, there were and there still are and for others there um there still are so i think that it's about the it's about really finding the um the the right balance and so for me it's like i think it still exists and i think that it's important to ground all conversations in that intersection of factors right um and also i i find you know when we talk about these topics, that there's a tendency when we use topics like toxic masculinity and things like that to, for men to think that they're being blamed or for, um, for a tendency to think that, you know, men are bad. And I don't, I fundamentally reject that idea. You know, I think that when we, when we categorize men in a certain way, we are selling so many good men short, you know, we're Mm. selling, we're selling progress of masculinity short. Um, but it's it's sort of like needs to be grounded with the caveat that uh, all men benefit from the from the kind of uh, structural disadvantage of women, and all men benefit from the the you know the sense of patriarchy in different ways, right? Yeah. You know, like men of certain class and ethnic groups do not benefit in the way that others do, um, but but certainly there is a like kind of like a uniform degree of benefit that occurs so i think that we need to ground things in their context but also have these open conversations so that we can progress you yeah. know and, I, and for me it's not like it's not like men are to blame as a collective but all men can play a responsibility you know it's about being that civic-minded person that wants a better community yeah. um so and men do it in other settings right they do it when it comes to sport they do it when it comes to community it's it's, it's now just about expanding that thinking to include the people who um, who suffer the most as a consequence of men's behaviour, which is primarily women. Yeah. No, I, I 100% agree with that. And I think it's a matter of kind of understanding that it, it kind of harks back to what we were talking about before where the immediate response is always defensiveness where, you know, it doesn't have to be that. Yeah, it doesn't have to be that at all. Uh, okay. And I think that... As South Asian men, we're we're not. I wouldn't say we're behind necessarily, but we um, we're very reluctant to have these conversations openly. Yeah. We're very concerned about, uh, you know, what will people say or what will people think or what will happen, and it sells us. You know, for for men who are listening, it sells us short. Yeah, right. It sells us so short because we. You know, the, the friends that I have that speak about these issues as well, also of South Asian origin, whether it's mental health, whether it's discrimination towards women, whatever it may be, LGBTQI um, inclusion, and, and they 
you know, they feel richer as the consequence of actually speaking about things that they're passionate about and they care about. And there's a shift, right? There's a shift. Like even people, you know, some people are worried about their careers, right? And so they choose to just stay silent. Yeah. But I mean, like. Why is it different for South Asian men, like in terms of, you know, I guess white men care about their careers and stuff as well. Why do you think it's so, why do you think there's so much reluctance and why are we further behind? It's a good question. I think that we, we're concerned about the cons- the very tangible consequences that we may suffer, you know, that it's hard. We, we have to, you know, people of colour, including men of colour, have to comparatively work harder to, yep. you know, particularly in corporate spaces to be recognised, to be included. And we have to, like, code switch and perform in a certain way in order to yep. fit within corporate culture in particular. And so I think that, like, there is a tendency to not want to rock the boat, yes. you know, to make life easier and, and choose the path of least resistance. But the thing about it is that it, it takes, it only takes a few to start speaking out for things to become normalised because, mm. you know, one person speaks out, then another person gets the courage and the, the ripple effect kind of flows on through society. I remember when the the debate was happening around the same-sex marriage plebiscite and a whole bunch of corporates took out, you know, whole pages in uh, in uh, broadsheet newspapers across Australia in support of same-sex marriage. And, and they're doing similar things around climate change. And so when it comes to issues of great social significance, it's not like this stuff is falling on, um, you know, people that aren't listening. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's, not, um, it's not like that's what's happening. Right. So I think that a little bit of courage from men of South Asian origin will go a long way to, yeah. to actually addressing this, like having the comfort to talk about things. I always find it interesting that um, particularly if you think about like, you know, the LGBTQI community, how few people of South Asian origin are open about gender and sexuality, mm. right, in the community. Mm. Uh, and it's like, are they proportionally less of the population no, no absolutely not but just so few people talk about it right so i think, I think a lot that, of that stems from like the fact that most of culturally most of our parents wouldn't necessarily be comfortable with people being out i guess which yeah. also contributes yeah. to like not speaking yeah. openly about it but also to take that further right that our parents wouldn't be comfortable about someone being out would they not be comfortable or would they not be comfortable because someone else will be uncomfortable? And then, like, the kind of ripple thing. So it's like, oh, if you say this, then so-and-so auntie or uncle will think this, right? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, but what if you be the first person to go, it's okay? Because yeah. then they can't do anything. And all then the, the person who has the problem is disempowered, right? Yeah. They, they have no agency over the situation. And so that's the sense of, like, community control that occurs to keep people with like uh, like blinkers on to just follow this path uh and and i think that the more open we are about these conversations the, the better and i want to ground this also with the fact that you know for people of south asian origin much like we talk about aboriginal populations and first nations peoples in australia there's intergenerational trauma yeah, right like people exactly. people live through people like from our parents and grandparents generation have lived through some pretty horrible stuff. And then the migrant experience of, like, coming here and settling in Australia, none of that is easy, right? So it's not like they're to blame for any of this. But also, like, um, you know, if there's, uh, you know, they're they're all 
generally pretty compassionate. So if there's like a there's compassion around these issues as well, it makes it easier to speak out. Like if there's compassion around the idea that uh, that women in abusive relationships, right, or women who are being abused by men are not to blame for the mm. actions of violent men. Like if we can make that jump mm. as a community, that then would, we will say yeah. we will save the lives of so many of our women. You yeah. know, we will we will. Um, and when we will have men taking accountability and we'll have men taking responsibility when their behaviour is a problem. Yeah, you know, and just having open have conversations. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think that's where as a community we're a bit reluctant to to speak about these things. And so for mine it's sort of like, um, particularly with the murder of my sister, it's like, well, fuck it. The worst thing that I had thought could happen has happened. Uh, so I'll just say what I think. And, yeah. you know, there's no, like, big strategy to it. It's just like, I'll just say this. I'll be yeah. as authentically true to what I think and what I feel in my heart, in my head, and I'll just put it out there. And if people like it, great. If they don't like it, that's fine too. Like, but, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I guess on that, um, in 2015 you experienced, yeah, one of the worst things anyone can experience, um, and that was, yeah, the murder of your sister, Nikita. And... Um, and that was by her husband at the time, or was was he her ex? Or they they were married still, right? They was they was splitting up. So she was trying to like leave him, and m- many right. women are uh, um, killed or murdered in the context of separation. So hers was right. you know not different from that. As we go into talk about some of that, tell me about um, you as a child and you you your passions growing up um what you were interested in how um nikita and you had a um kind of your relationship growing up and the things that you shared and um and i guess what she was passionate about yeah right so i mean we so we moved from india to australia when i was 18 months of age and we sort of grew up um, in Melbourne, and uh, and Nikki was passionate from a very early age about uh, dance and any form of like creativity, you know, painting, mm. music. Um, she's very creatively inclined, and uh, and so as an older brother, I um I sort of just loved watching her flourish with that, and I loved watching her sort of explore that. And I think particularly, you know, for first and second generation migrants there is that tendency to go into things that contribute to like security and financial freedom. Yes. And, and the arts is not synonymous with that, right? It, it's not synonymous with that anywhere in the world, um, unfortunately. And so, you know, for me, like, you know, growing up and watching Nikki do all that stuff, I was such a, like an avid supporter of her doing what she was passionate about because I saw how much happier it made her. But then when she finished high school, she went and studied accounting, right? Mm. Which is such a like stereotypical story. It's just that's just South classic. Asian thing. And I always wonder like how many, how many uh accountants are there that could have been amazing poets or sculptors yeah. or painters or just doing stuff that they like care about. Um and I'm sure there are accountants who love what they do. Um yeah. but <laughs> Yeah, she she wouldn't have been one of them. And so at the end of her first year of uni, after getting, I think, terrible marks in accounting because she was n- not passionate about it, she went and studied performing arts at Monash University and then um, 
after her death, she had like a couple of subjects to go at the time of her death and she was posthumously awarded her degree and my mum collected it on her behalf in 2017. Mm. And to me it was like really, um, it was a really powerful moment then because it was synonymous with like what I fundamentally believe, which is like women's right to empowerment and education, but also uh, everyone's right, and particularly women, to pursue the things that they're passionate about, you know, mm. without fear of taboo or stigma. And so, I mean, even if it's like as simple as like, there are a lot of South Asian women, right, who like have side hustles as like makeup artists and stuff like that, right? And I love to see it. And I'll tell you why, because they're doing something in their day job that kind of gives them security and, and, and meets the expectations that are put around them. But then there's this outlet for them that they just fully love. They're so yeah. into it. And I just think that regardless of who you are, having something that gives you an outlet or something that, you know, makes you feel like, yeah, I really love doing this. I love being yeah. able to do this. It provides purpose as well for a lot of people who kind of don't usually have that in their day-to-day. Yeah, exactly. Like sometimes when you're working in a big company, feeling part of a, like a, almost like a cog in a machine, it's like, what's the point? Um, so, I mean, that stuff really, uh, I really respected about Nikki a lot that she was someone that chased her dreams and she was really passionate about it and was good at it too. Like it wasn't like she was just doing it and she, um, you know, like you see people and they're doing stuff and then you kind of, you love them. So you have to say positive things, yeah. but really they're not that good at it. Like she was good at it. So it was yeah. it made it easier to like give feedback. If anything, she was, she was better at it than she would let on. Right. She was, she was so much better at it, but she, she was such a like, um, like a gentle soul. And she had like quite a, bit of like self-esteem issues partly because of the abuse that she endured you know where yeah. it, um but like you know women in abusive relationships like the abuser will whittle their sense of self-esteem down and, and erode their confidence and so she was sort of like someone that needed that validation particularly from from family and like okay. me in particular you know like she would often I like mum tells me that she would often ask like you know oh ma what would be I think like that like what would you know what would what would he say like would it be good you know so like she was like actively like very like interested and family oriented um more so than I was and am like I I think more I am more now but I think growing up I was like cool my parents don't care I don't care would you consider you guys having been close yeah yeah, definitely. I mean, we had like we were we were four years apart in age, which is like just close enough. Yeah. Um, that you you know you're not at separate life stages. Yeah. You know, like if it was six years or eight years, it'd be different. Um, but there was enough of a difference. It wasn't like two years where we were like always doing the same thing. You know, so like when I started university, she was still in high school, like that. So it was um, yeah, we were we were definitely close. Um, but in the way that like sometimes siblings are as well, that like you. Um, you have periods where, particularly during her teen years, where we weren't as close. Yeah. You know, but that's, I think that's common, right? Where it's like, it's normal. Um, yeah, I would have been like 17, she would have been like 13, and we both couldn't stand <laughs> the side of each other. Yeah. And then like two years later, it was like we were kids again. Everything was yeah. normal. So, yeah, we're definitely close. And, um, you know, the thing is like about all of this and Nikki's death is that like it's the worst thing that's happened in my family for sure. Um, and it's a common experience for far too many families across Australia and the world. But, but really, like, what we don't always grapple with is that, like, 
we because we're still here so we frame things around ourselves right but Mm -hmm. the person that ultimately suffered is the murder victim you know like everything nikki could have done after 23 years of age she won't get to do you know i think it's like she would have turned 30 this year and so i think that like that that gets me because it's like what what could have been and what should have been where would she be yeah yeah, and I mean, I don't know. I'd be purely hypothesizing and making it up at this point. Like I had, I could have forecast, you know, in the year after her death, maybe two years after her death. But beyond that, it's just your imagination. Yeah. You know, like you don't you don't know and you can't say. Yeah. Um, and for me, like at the time of her death and afterwards, subsequently, there was sort of a lack of understanding of, of family violence and men's violence, particularly in you know, ethnic communities, certainly the way that Nikki's death was reported in the media, the way that the courts viewed families of colour, all of that stuff, it didn't sit right with me. Mm. And so, like, just felt like I had to speak out about it. Yeah. You know, it was just, like I, I felt like a moral obligation. I couldn't not speak out about it. Yeah. Um, and you have, a, yes. you have a law degree, don't you? Yeah. I admitted to practice but don't practice. Right. Yeah. And I guess going through something so traumatizing i mean from the outside it 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 looks like you've turned your grief into something that you've used your skills as a lawyer what strategies do you think you used to kind of get to a place where you were able to advocate for other people for nikki's memory i guess yeah right so i mean it's an interesting question and i don't know the answer in terms of strategies necessarily mm-hmm. um but uh, like i'm the type of person who when they're committed to something will do absolutely everything in their power to try to do it mm. um which is one of the things i like about myself but also one of the things i hate about myself mm. right is that like i like i have a tendency to become a relentless workaholic and um, certainly like push myself to the brink of burnout mm. and then beyond and then like sitting in in therapy and then the therapist might say like oh I think it's time to take a break and it's like oh can I like schedule that in like yeah can we do it in like yeah <laughs> um, so there's like there's that sort of personality tendency and trait um, which I think both helps and hinders what I chose to do um, but I didn't. I didn't have clear strategies. I didn't like. It was. It happened so soon after Nikki's murder that I started speaking about this stuff. Like within yeah. six weeks, I was talking about it. Um, yeah. but, but what I noticed is that there was initially a reluctance to um, want to hear from from me in the media as a person of color. But then, as sort of. I spoke more and as it resonated and as like sort of one gatekeeper in the media would give me like uh, an entry pathway, it led to another. Initially, the only place that I spoke was SBS, right, mm-hmm. because I looked like this. Yeah. And then after that it was like, and even now it's still mainly those, but like I've been on like say like Channel 7 a couple of times. Yeah. And so for me it's like, Let's normalize having more people speaking about the issues that affect a broad cross section of the community on, you know, on and in and around mainstream media. Like, don't think of 
whole ethnic groups as though they just exist in a vacuum. Yeah. Yeah, and that they exist in isolation from the quote-unquote mainstream population. We're part of the mainstream. You know, we just have a few other components to our identities as well, but we exist alongside everyone else. So for me it was like, you know, just speak about it. And so when people ask me, they're like, oh, you know, I often get contacted like, oh, I want to, you know, um, I want to talk about this, so I want, you know, what can I do? And it's so, I mean, it's so straightforward, the advice, but it's always just just start talking about it. Just do it. it. Mm. Just literally just do it. Like just start talking about it. And they're like, oh, but how do I get out there? And it's like, and this is, I hate saying this, but like you don't because no one does. Like no people of colour or very few people of colour, I should say, are being afforded opportunities. So few people of colour are being given any kind of platform, especially women of colour. And I think that the best thing that we can do um, is in the platforms available to us, which is primarily social media, uh, and even that's not democratised, right, with, like, the rise of, like, um, you know, influencer culture and things like that and algorithms not working in our favour. But the more that we can, like, show that we exist the more that we get taken seriously. And I think for people that are like on the precipice of starting but not knowing what to do, imagine like imagine there's like, you know, from a group of 100 people, 60 or 80 of them want to write about something but they don't, you know, or speak out about an issue but they don't, right, Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. For whatever reason. The rest of the population doesn't know that those people exist because Mm -hmm. they haven't seen them, right? Mm -hmm. But the more of us as people of colour in particular are like, I care about this, I'm going to talk about it, the more that we have to get taken seriously. It's a sheer numbers argument, right, that it's like, oh, they exist, you know. And so that's where, like, we're often so worried about rocking the boat. We're often so worried. And if anything, I'm testament to the fact that, you know, there's not that much bad stuff that happens. Like it's, I mean, there's certain things, like, uh, that make it harder. Um, It's, like, financially it's unstable. There's certain consequences, definitely. But the ultimate, like, risk-reward ratio is that you feel a sense of, like, deep purpose and Mm. gratitude for the people that come along the journey with you and you get to make some pretty good relationships as well. So I think that it's it's really just about um, finding whatever conviction and courage allows you to put yourself out there. And, I mean, for me it was the fact that after Nikki's murder, um, it really triggered something in me where it was like, fuck it, life is short. If I'm going to do anything, I may as well do it. What compelled you to, to, to? I mean, obviously, like something so, like something like your sister's murder is going to propel you into action. What compelled you to do it through advocacy? Um, good question. I mean, it's sort of uh, probably a, a mix of. Um, a mix of factors. I guess part of it is like how I was raised and what I think, you know, what I believe in and what I see is important. You know, like I think for me it was like what are the skills, you touch on this, what are the skills that I have and where can I actually make a difference? Mm. Um, and so part of it was around that, you know, and there's there were clear were and still are clear policy gaps in Australia around this stuff. And then also... Part of it was like the zeitgeist moment. Nikki was murdered in 2015 when Victoria, where I live, uh, started their Royal Commission into Family Violence. 
So part of it was like the framework around that was that that mm. was an opportunity for me to contribute and to to mm. be part of creating some kind of change and legacy. Yeah. So that was sort of where it it triggered that, right? Um, but failing that, it would have just been like, you know, a lot of the other campaigning and lobbying and things and, and advocating for change. I think that, you know, a lot of the stuff that I say, it's not groundbreaking. Women have said it for a long time and it rests on the shoulders of those giants. And I think that for me, it's about making sure that, you know, those who are in power listen to the voices yeah. of people who want a society that's safer for women, that's more inclusive, that um, respects the fundamental human rights, particularly of women, you know, yeah. women of colour. Because they're, I mean, I feel, and I have to, say it feels strange for me as a man saying this to you but i don't think women of color are respected you know mm. like i think that they're treated you know primarily they're, they're either fetishized and you know made to be like exotic mm. um or they're um invisible you know, or they're treated or they're invisible you know mm. or worse they're treated like shit you know yeah. and one of the strange things that i've heard from from people from women of color is that Sometimes they'll say, out of all the options available to me, I would take feeling invisible because at least then I don't have to actively deal with it. Yeah. They're like, they're like, if they don't see me, I can live with that. But when it's like overt racism or when it's and and sexism, or when it's like feeling objectified, yeah, you know, like an object, you know, yeah. because of like my hair or because of my skin color or whatever, yeah. they're like that makes me feel so reduced to an object. So sometimes they're like, if I can have a day of just being invisible, you know, and that's heartbreaking to hear, right, to be on the yeah. other side of that, to go, you would rather just not be seen. But that's, I mean, that's the plight of women of colour. And I think that as men of colour, we'd be, we'd do well to listen to the experiences of women more. Mm. Yeah. And I, I think at the same time, and this harks back to what I was saying earlier, is, men's voices are valued and so even just ensuring what you're doing to ensure that the voices of um women are and the messages that they have reach as many nooks and crannies as possible is is immensely important oh absolutely and i think there's a tendency for men and i put myself in this category obviously that we think we're more um progressively minded or you know quote unquote woke than we are we're not right we're conditioned by a a system that has um primarily benefited men and so we have to like acknowledge that we're part of an ongoing path we're part of an mm -hmm. ongoing journey to dismantle and learn and and become a better version of ourselves throughout yeah so yeah, I think that I think that you know, and and that's the thing, right? That like, because sometimes men are a bit reluctant to go. Oh well, I don't know what to do, and I don't know where I fit in, and how it all works, and I don't want to say the, the wrong thing. And that's where it's like saying the wrong thing is still better than saying nothing. Nothing, you know, like like doing absolutely nothing, um, or the appearance of doing absolutely nothing, just allows Complicit. the oppressor to continue doing what they're doing. Yeah. yeah, like you said, complicit. So, um, yeah, for me, it's just a case of, you know, men finding it in themselves to say something, you know, um, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's starting with mental health um, or it's speaking about, you know, gender discrimination in their own communities, 
I, th- I guess the issue with society at the moment is that men don't tend to talk about things if they're not directly affected by them, right? What message would you have for those men who feel like they haven't been disadvantaged or directly affected by systems that oppress women? Where do they start in terms of even having that conversation and speaking out about it or understanding that they might have a role to play? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that um, one of the things that is is true about that situation is that men don't think they're affected. Mm. But they don't, I don't think we are taught to realise just how much we are affected. Mm. You know, like we don't live in isolation from women. You know, like men who, say for instance, men who um, become husbands and then their partner and they have children, Right. Systemic gender discrimination will impact on their partner and then in turn impact their child, which impacts their family unit. Yeah. Right. So they are, they may not think that they are directly affected, but they're not that far removed from yeah. being affected. These things affect all people, especially men. You know, like when we talk yeah. about um when we talk about things around like women, stereotypes around women and men, rigid gender stereotypes, a lot of the stuff impacts on men. Yeah. And then for men of color, it impacts them acutely. Yeah. So, you know, and we saw like like Floyd Mayweather, for instance, when he yeah. recently uh th- when he recently refused to sign the uh like sign something. Take a photo. A, take a, a photo. With- yeah, take a photo with a fan yeah. who had nail polish. And it was yeah. like, dude, it's pathetic, yeah. man. Like I mean, it's it's interesting because it when you say that, it actually is is so true that men are so acutely affected by like notions of toxic masculinity it's it's not just something that affects women men are unable to express emotion in the way that they might want to express it or have fulfilling friendships in the way that women have friendships or are seen to have friendships and it's yeah I mean it affects every part of their being as well it's just unfortunately not perceived that way yeah exactly yeah, that's that's the thing. It affects men, um, and, and it's just that we, as a society, don't create space for men to see that it affects them. You know, yeah. so that they and that's I think that's the next step. That moving beyond the idea that um, moving beyond the idea that patriarchy has benefited men to um, an understanding that patriarchy has harmed men, yeah, as well as women. I think it's harmed women far more, and it still does. But it doesn't, it certainly doesn't help the interests of the majority of men. It helps the interests of a very small subset of men um, who continue the narrative that um, that anything like feminism or anything that moves towards equality for anyone else will somehow diminish the rights and liberties of, of all yeah. men. And it won't. It really won't. What I'm curious about is is the idea that you're able to kind of be so tuned in and passionate about everything yet you must be battling so much on a personal level having gone through what you've gone through how do you balance that personal grief and still have kind of an online platform I think part of it is that part of it is a way of healing right it's Mm -hmm. actually in its own way a way of processing Mm. grief and trauma is to speak about it also I mean, I, I did a quite a bit of therapy after Nikki's murder, right? And I, um, 
yeah, like I, I processed it in a way where like Nikki's dead. That's it. The end. Like I don't, you know, if I if I just stay angry about that fact, then I diminish my ability to live my life. Mm. You know, so I'm like I've just like I've quite literally come to the point of acceptance that that is what it is. It's mm. not like I'm over it. I don't think you get over it. And yeah. I hate that expression. But I've I'm at peace with that that's the reality and mm. it's an injustice. You know, like it is a grave injustice and that is what it is. And so for me it's about, well, this is the situation um, and what can I do with it and what can I make of it? Um, mm. Yeah. So, I mean, on the one hand, there's the, the, the aspect that, yeah, like I'm, you know, a man who speaks about these issues. But on the other hand, like, you know, I'm brother of someone that was murdered and that's... Yeah. Um, You're very talk about it yeah and I, I think that i think that whenever anyone whether they're a survivor themselves whether they're a related family member, whatever when when people speak from a position of lived experience i think that we all we all benefit we learn more you know we learn more it's like if you know let's say take the example of mental health it's like if a ceo of an organization that works in mental health speaks about you know mental illness Versus when we watch an interview on TV or um, YouTube or whatever or listen to a podcast with someone who's lived through different mental health challenges. Yeah. The authenticity of someone who's lived through something will always trump that kind of experience of someone who's just speaking from like a broad kind of yes. organizational perspective. You know, and I think that for me, like the more people, particularly the more the more we amplify the opportunities for women and survivors to speak, the more that we understand um, the insidious nature of abuse and the more that I think we understand that victims and survivors of abuse don't look a certain way or act a certain way. You know, there's that image mm. of like a, there's that image of a woman cowering in the kitchen under like a, a male kind of shadowy figure who's yes. got a clenched fist. Yeah. And that's so, I mean, that's. Reductive. To me that, in, yeah, to me that infantilizes women, mm. you know, like, yeah, like accomplished women can, can be and are survivors of abuse. They're not just yeah. women cowering in the corner, terrified. Yeah. And men who um, don't look like monsters can also be perpetrators. Yeah. In fact, none of them look like monsters. They yeah. look like normal people. That's like that's yeah. like the thing. There's no, yeah, there's no, um, none of them look like monsters. They just look like ordinary everyday men. And I think that's the thing, that we have to um, acknowledge that. We have to uh, move past our understanding of of what abuse victims and abuse perpetrators look like. You talked about how kind of that you've come to be at peace with sadness and kind of accepted it and been able to channel that in a different direction. Did you ever have feelings of anger um, towards like the perpetrator of your sister's murder? And how did you kind of, if so, how, how, how did you kind of grapple with that? Yeah, I mean, I still... I still have anger um, and I would say contrary to what some people believe, I'm pretty, I'm a pretty angry person. I just channel it in different ways. Like yeah. every time I read the news, I feel angry about it, but I just don't, uh, yeah, just don't see productivity and violence necessarily. Yeah. I, I, um, 
I don't understand him, mm. you know, the man that killed my sister. Like I don't, and I don't think about him other than when I have to. So I'm thinking about him right now because I'm answering a question about him. But otherwise, the rest of my day, I won't think about him. He doesn't yeah. factor into my thoughts. To me, he is so utterly meaningless. Like mm-hmm. he exists and that's it. And his overall contribution to the world is negative. Yeah, so for me, it's like what's the point? I, I try to focus on that and I think part of it is um one of the ways I cope is that my advocacy centers around prevention and early intervention and less of like response you know like I do lesser I I don't speak about how to rehabilitate murderers for instance um partly because I don't know you know it's an area that I know about but I understand and know about how to create a culture that normalizes men seeking help that normalizes Uh, spaces for women to access help that normalizes conversations around uh, positive forms of living rather than um, the punitive response side and also because it's very difficult once someone's been killed you can't turn back time you can't change that you can't fix the situation Um, so I mean from that perspective I don't really think about him I don't really understand him yeah, he's just a shitty person and that's it. And, like, I remember during the court process, he had no sense of remorse, you know. He actually, I remember sitting through uh, one of the court hearings when my mum was speaking, giving a victim impact statement about the loss of her only daughter and her, her second child and he was just sitting there, like, looking at his muscles like, so he's, like, got no kind of sense of, like, I did the most horrible crime that you can be charged with. I did that. Um, and I need to, like, f- grapple with that. That's so heartbreaking. But at the same time, I think it's like a reflection on him. And, that, yeah, that's just horrible. I'm really sorry. That's, that's, that's all right. I mean, so, like, for me, it's, like, I'm not that interested or phased in like what he thinks or whatever like i'm just he exists he lives and that's it i don't support the death penalty um i feel adequately like qualified to to speak on that topic because someone that i you know share 50 percent of my dna with was murdered i'm also a lawyer but i don't support under no circumstances for anyone do i support the death penalty Mm. um because i think i think that we collectively are diminished if we if we um support that and other people can disagree i'm sure there's disagreements within my own family on that Mm. but like i don't support it my mum and i certainly don't support it That, that, Mm -hmm. that's not the to our mind that's not the way that you deal with these sorts of things. What is probably more important and what you have done is kind of shine light on the issue because there are more people like that who are existing and more people like Nikki who can be saved. And I think that is far more important to put energy into and um, and, and you do that uh, really, really effectively. Um, I no, guess. Thank you. Yeah, I guess I'll end with... A question, um, which is, I mean, a two-pronged question. How do you think Nikki would look at what you're doing now and who you are as a person now and how you've changed? And then secondly, where do you want, where do you see yourself being in the next 10 years? 
five years. Yeah, wow, wow. Um, what a what a great two prong question. I think that Nikki would uh, see me the way she always saw me, which is that she. Um, I could always tell she had like a sense of respect for me, right? Like she um, would probably feel the same. Um, she she was never that impressed by anything I achieved in life, like you are with siblings, right? So like mm-hmm. um, I would still think that she's really annoying um, mm-hmm. and she would still think that I'm really annoying and we would still bicker and fight and complain even into adulthood. I don't think that would have changed at all. Um, but I think that she would have a sense of pride that, um, I'm doing things that hopefully help other people um, and I want to keep doing that. Um, in terms of where I'd be in 10 years, I think I'd probably be onto like my, you know, 15th booster shot for coronavirus by then. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't, like I actually, I don't know. Like I I can't answer that. I, I'm sorry. I don't even know. Like I don't know what I'm doing next week. I'm not <laughs> one of those people that has like, yeah, yeah massive 10-year plan. Like, it's unfair that I'm asking really you it because I can't answer it myself. It's so hard. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I would like, I would like to see, in a broader sense, I don't know where I want to be in ten years, but I know the kind of world I want to live in, and so I think all of my activities will be geared towards trying to do that. And I want a world that's more inclusive. I want a world that is less, uh, you know, less judgmental of people of color. I want a world that allows women and um, those who are marginalized uh, to, to live with dignity. You know, that's the kind of world that I want to see and that I want to be a part of. And, I, and I, for mine, whatever I can do to help create that, I will do, you yeah. know. Because, um, like, you never, I mean, you never know, right? Like, I've lost, you know, I've lost friends, you know, in the last few years and I've lost my sister and other things. You, need, you don't know, right? You just don't know. So I think that, like, um, if I can just, pack as much into a day as possible while, um, you know, while not missing an episode of The Bachelor or The Bachelorette at the same time. That's, I mean, that's good. That's enough for me. Yeah. Um, no, I, I yeah. love that. I love that perspective about just making your actions geared towards what you want the world to be. I think that's something that will sit with me for a while. That's very, yeah, very- that's it. Like, I don't, because I don't know what it's going to look like. Like, I don't know. I, I like, I can't say definitively where I'll live. I don't have a partner, so I can't say, like, this is what we are planning to do. Yeah, I'm sorry. I can't answer that, like, where no. I'll be and what I'll be doing, but I know that I want to do things along the way. And then where I end up, I end up. No, I, th- I think you did answer that very, um, very adequately. Um, Tharang, thank you for your time. We've gone way of over course. time. But um, I really enjoyed the conversation. I learned a lot from you. I am feeling a little emotional, um, but also I'm a huge supporter of everything that you're doing. And I think there's so much potential for men to learn from you or learn from the people that you uh, pass the mic to. So thank you for your work, for what you've gone through. Yeah, it's just amazing. Thank you so much Uh, for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, it has. I feel like I've just been chatting. It doesn't feel like we've been recording. <laughs> yeah, true. Where can people find you to follow you? Um, so my name, Darren Javla, is pretty like easy to um, to find. There's not too many of us. So I think you just pop it in Google and then like all of my socials just come up. And then Amazing. You can, yeah, you can take your pick, whether you're a Facebook person, whether you're uh, Insta, Twitter, whatever. 
but I'm across okay. all of them. I got TikTok not that long ago. Are you addicted oh, yet? Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm like, yeah, I need to go to like a, a 12-step program to get off it. <laughs> if you find one, you got to tell, tell me which one that is. Anyway, I'll let you go. You've only got five minutes. All right, cool. See you, Cripper. Take Bye. care. We'll chat soon. We'll chat Bye. soon. Bye.